Welcome to Behave, the behavioral science podcast where we discuss, explore, and aim to showcase the practical benefits of layering behavioral insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth. Hosted by Pedro Martins, a director at Total Media, the behavioral planning agency. Remember to rate us on wherever you listen to podcasts, and for any questions, feedback, or requests for future topics, please email us at podcast at behave.co.uk. For more information on anything discussed in the episode and useful downloads, please visit behave.co.uk forward slash podcast. Welcome to Behave, the podcast that aims to showcase practical business benefits through the application of behavioural science to your marketing. We're back our COVID-19 lockdown podcast series. And we continue the conversation with Richard Shotton and Will Hamden Lloyd. And this is probably the podcast episode that someone in the government should have listened to, which could have helped prevent Dominic Cummings doing what he did. Enjoy. Rich, can you, can you talk me through some of the tactics that the government would use to encourage people to follow the rules? Of course. Um, so one tactic that I think the government could apply more, and in fact, advertisers in general could apply more, is a lovely idea called the, the Keats heuristic. So this is the idea that phrases that rhyme are seen as more believable and they're much more memorable. So it comes from a study done back in 1999 by Matthew McGlone and Jessica Toffigbash. And what they did was they recruited participants and they gave them long lists of essentially fake proverbs. So people might get proverbs like children of fools shouldn't play with sharp tools or what sobriety conceals, alcohol reveals. Now, the twist was that half the people would get that proverb in a rhyming version half would get it in a version that didn't rhyme. So rather than what sobriety conceals, alcohol reveals, it would be what sobriety conceals, alcohol unmasks. So same meaning, but without the rhyme. People were given these proverbs and they were asked um, how believable, you know, score each proverb on a, on a scale of I think one to nine. And what was interesting is even though they didn't draw any attention to the uh, rhyming, element people were more likely to rate those rhymes so about 22 percent they rated the rhyming frames as more believable than the groups who saw the non-rhyming phrase now what they argued was that they called it uh, enhanced fluency of processing what they essentially mean is that when people see a rhyming phrase it's much easier to understand and we mistake that ease of understanding um, for believability perhaps because we tend to things that we've seen again and again which tend to be true uh, we find those easier to process as well so there's this long-standing idea that rhymes are more uh, are more believable on top of that I did a really simple experiment and again you know this is a theme we've touched on before but one of the things I love about behavioral science is all these experiments are publicly available. So when I read about this experiment by those two psychologists, I thought of a little twist to it, which could test memorability. So we used the same design, gave people a long list of proverbs, some rhymed, some didn't, gave them those lists in the morning, and then we got the people back in the afternoon and asked them to write down as many as they could remember. And people could remember, eight hours later, about 14% of the non-rhyming phrases but they could remember more than twice as many about 29 percent of the rhyming phrases 
Wow, so that's so, impressive. Um, yes, I mean, it's a much bigger difference in terms of memorability than uh, 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 believability. But what's fascinating is you don't see rhyming ads being used any longer. You know, there's a huge body of amazing public health campaigns, uh, coughs and sneezes, spread diseases, uh, lend a hand on the land. There's a huge range of commercials um, for brands that have done it. Uh, we all adore a Cura. Uh, don't be vague, ask for Hague, for Ash get smash. You know, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, rhyming ads were a, a staple of advertising. But the last 10 years, when I went down to the, the newspaper archives, um, I found that less than 4% of print ads used a rhyme. So they've completely fallen out of fashion. And I don't think that's anything to do with a loss of effectiveness. You know, the, um, the study I did was in 2017. The study McGlone did was in 1999. It's not a case that this um, insight was relevant and is no longer relevant. You know, it's just as powerful today. But I think advertisers are too concerned about whether they look impressive to their peers than whether the ad is, is effective or not. And yes, a rhyme might be brilliant at memorability and truthfulness, but what it certainly doesn't do is signal your, um, your sophistication to other creative directors. So for brands in general, I do think it's a mistake that these um, tactics, these well-known well-proven tactics have, have fallen out of fashion. <laughs> it, sound, it sounded there for a second that you said, ask for hash and get smashed. <laughs> Did it? Well, I mean, if there are any drug dealers out there, they're, they're welcome to use that, uh, that phrase. No, sorry, for mash, get smashed. But it's interesting, you know, I mean, if you think about popular culture, um, no, no carbs before marbs. I mean, People still uh, create these rhyming phrases and they become very, very sticky. It's not that it's changed in society. I think it's very much it's changed in the advertising world. Yeah, it's it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's very rare now that you start to see those. I mean, Mash Get Smash was popular. I still remember that now from my childhood. Well, well, yeah, I mean, that's, yes. I mean, you think um, uh, less bother with a hover, um, get busy with the fizzy. I mean, some of these ads with you know well the, the don't be vague ask for hey that's 90 years old you know, uh, it, it's a it is a tactic that that, that stands the test of time will have you got any uh anything you want to add to this well i think i i'd just start by saying i agree the power of rhyme has been known for thousands of years greeks used it in the oral tradition uh to pass on information and as a child i remember uh leaves of three let it be for avoiding poison ivy. So it, it's used uh, in lots of different places in Powerful. I think there's lots of areas we've seen where advertising seems to respond to what feels cool or current rather than necessarily what's effective. Another example might be the decline of the jingle, which has a lot of evidence behind it for being effective, but has has reduced in usage, not necessarily for uh, good reasons, but because it feels... Um, old hat or, or slightly less cool or less exciting. And so people want to do it less, um, even though it might work. Yeah, there, there might even be an element of rhymes and jingles and other long-standing techniques are a victim of their own success. That there is a bit of a myth in marketing circles that consumers have radically changed and therefore 
people, if, if you believe that, you might think, well, if rhymes are so successful in the 1930s, the 1950s and 1960s, if the consumer has radically changed, then you'd expect them not to be so effective now. But it's a myth. There's very little evidence that the fundamentals of how consumers are influenced, how they're persuaded. There's very little evidence that they have they have changed. Um, there's a lovely quote from Bill Birnbach where he says something along the lines of, it's taken millions of years for human nature to evolve. It'll take millions of years for it to vary. It might be fashionable to talk about the changing man, but as communicators, we should be concerned with the unchanging man. And rhyme is a tactic that can influence that unchanging man. I think that that's, again, goes back to the importance of understanding behavioural science, because to your point, consumers haven't changed. I mean, everything around us is changing, but instinctively and actually biologically, we're still very much the same. Yeah, it, you know, it's a blink of the eye in evolutionary terms from the 1930s to, to now. Um, yes, technology and society might be changing, but some of those underlying principles are influencing people whether it's social proof or um, the pratfall effect, they are much more, much more stable. Yeah, exactly. Now, one, one of the things we talked about, um, I think in these last couple of weeks is about social proof and the importance of that to encourage uh, people to do positive, take positive action. But um, it's, it's not that it's not that everyone will actually comply because a lot of people that are in lockdown won't comply. So t- can you tell me a bit more about sort of, effects and uh, elements that might come into play because of that how do we ensure people comply because social proof is useful but not everyone will follow it and not everyone will comply will they will what do you think well yeah there's definitely going to be distinct groups who don't comply and, and don't follow um government or company advice and i think the important thing is to try and remove the emotion from it and understand why that is and what the most effective way to change their behaviour will be. One of the reasons is because of something called reactance. And so for a distinct group, there are people who, when they feel their individual freedoms are being taken away or limited, they'll have an instinctive motivation to push back. It's not necessarily rational, but a hardwired instinctive feeling. Um, This can be particularly prominent for people who distrust government, have individualistic tendencies, or feel really strongly um, attached to the freedoms that are being curtailed. I think what's important is that their instinctive feeling is not just to ignore the advice, but almost to push back against it and to openly and flagrantly disobey the rules. Um, And there are times when actually these types of people are very useful, when you have uh, regimes historically who have been... uh, bad that this kind of feeling and instinctive emotion in these people are often the ones that will initially push back but during a global health crisis it's actually going to produce negative behavior because their instinctive motivation is going to be to push back against the rules that they feel are being forced on them so so with that kind of thing will how, how do we get them to comply well i think there is a, a real challenge and this comes to the second part of it of um when people feel quite strongly about something, it's actually very difficult to shift their opinion. Uh, there's two uh, biases that we talk about. One is confirmation bias, where people filter information to confirm what they already believe. And actually something called the backfire effect, which is uh, 
if you tell someone who believes something strongly that they're wrong, you actually end up making them believe it even more. And quickly on that, on a, another really important area, an example of that is the Me Too movement in America, where actually after a year of people talking about the importance of uh, this issue and the fact that uh, women are suffering uh, and not being believed, actually more people in the US started to believe that false accusations of assault were a bigger problem than unreported assault and that women who complain about sexual harassment cause more problems than they solve. So actually admonishing people and pushing the information out there caused more people to double down on negative beliefs. Uh, and I think we need to be really careful of that with COVID-19 and, and trying to get people to follow lockdowns. We can have an understandable desire to admonish those people and uh, describe their behaviour as bad and uh, harmful to society. But actually, the backfire effect and confirmation bias means that not only will they not respond to that, it may actually double make them double down on what they believe and what they're doing. So we need to think of ways of getting beyond confirmation bias and the backfire effect to influence these people. Um, there are a number of things that we can do. One, I think, is try and engage positively with them. Um, so start from a position of empathy and understanding so that they don't immediately dismiss or push back against your message. And secondly, there are ways to frame a message. So if you can frame the message about how if they change their behaviour, it will produce a benefit, it's likely to have a bigger effect than if you frame it as if you don't do this, it's going to cause a negative. Trying to to build on what people can feel good about rather than telling them they should feel bad about themselves, they're more likely to engage and listen uh, than if we just try to admonish them and almost shame them into changing their behaviour. And uh, Rich, have you got anything to add to this? Yeah, I, th I think it's a, a fascinating area because, of course, it's relevant for uh, COVID situation, but it's also relevant for commercial brands if they are ever trying to win over rejectors. And I think there are three broad tactics in addition to the ones uh, uh, Will's mentioned. So the first is this idea of, of, of the messenger effect. So when the Behavioural Insights team came up with their first framework for using behavioural science, they had an acronym of Mindspace and the M stood for the messenger effect. The idea that the influence of a message uh, depends on who says it. Now, if confirmation bias is the idea that we interpret uh, a message through a lens of our feelings for a brand or communicator, then you've got a problem if you are disliked as a brand or communicator because people will interpret your message very very cynically so what you can what you can do is make sure the message comes from someone else and the government have been in the past brilliant at, at doing this um, when for example they want to emphasize the power of the state you know if the hmrc is demanding tax it's emblazoned with or the livery of the state the portcullis and uh to remind people of the kind of consequences but when they want to talk to uh, younger groups about saying like drugs, often the government branding will be completely absent. You know, they have created a sub-identity that seems to have no relationship with the NHS or the government called Frank. You know, that's a brilliant way of putting out information about drugs that would be rejected if it came from, from an authority figure. Now, 
that's a lot more difficult in the current situation because people are coming up with these campaigns on the fly. So they're doing an amazing job under the under the pressures they have. But that's one thing that, that brands might want to think about, this idea of the messenger effect. The second is there's some lovely work from, I think it was 1966, by two Stanford psychologists called Friedman and Fraser. And they did an awful lot of work about this idea called the foot in the door technique. So they wanted to know, how do you persuade people to change behaviour if, uh, if they don't want to? So in their experiment, it was all about how do you get American homeowners to put up this giant, ugly 16 square foot sign in their front garden saying drive carefully. So two different scenarios, the control uh, in their experiment, they just went up to someone's door, knocked on it and said, well, you, um, they gave them a spiel about why road safety was important. And then they asked them to put up the sign. And when they did that, only about 17% of people agreed to put up the sign. Second scenario, they try a different tactic. They go to homeowners, different group, randomly selected, knock on their door, uh, give them the same spiel, exactly the same spiel about road safety. But this time they say, will you put up this tiny little sticker um, saying drive carefully? Now, for such a big problem, it was such an inconsequential ask that virtually all homeowners agree to putting up that sticker in their window. Friedman and Fraser then leave, wait two weeks, and then they come back uh, with their, their their genuine ask. They knock on doors of everyone who's put up the sticker, and then they say, will you put up this giant sign in your front garden saying drive carefully? Now, interestingly, in their, their kind of one-hit approach, only 17% of people did that when they were directly asked. When um, they did this two-step process, about two-thirds of homeowners agreed to put up the sign. What they thought was happening was it's all about this idea of consistency. There's an awful lot of pressure and deep cultural belief uh, in our society that we should be consistent with our past behaviour. We're very rude about people who are inconsistent. So what Friedman and Fraser thought happened in that second scenario was that when they went up to those homeowners, they looked, the homeowners looked back at their past behaviour, saw they'd put up the sticker, saw that that must be the behaviour of someone who cares about road safety, and therefore, to be consistent with that, they agreed to put up this big sign. So if you want someone to make a major change to their behaviour, uh, COVID or in brand behaviour, or at work or in other public health situations, sometimes the best thing to do is not to ask people um, to do it in one go, but try and identify what is the smallest action you can ask of someone um, that will change their identity and then follow that up with a much bigger ask. So that's the idea of the, the, the foot in the door technique. Um, I mean, there was one other, which is around some, some of the Festinger experiments. Do you want me to talk about those? Or Yeah, yeah, go for yeah, it. Okay, okay. So um, the other, the final tactic is um and this is what i love about behavioral science that a lot of the the psychologists who told us about some of the problems of persuading people like confirmation bias um those same scientists came up with solutions so one again was another stanford psychologist called leon festinger and he did an awful lot of work identifying and, and researching the problem of confirmation bias but what he also did which i think is of interest uh, 
um, anyone trying to influence behavior is he came up with some, some, some really useful tactics. So in his most famous experiment, he recruits a group of American students, all of whom are members of a college fraternity. Now, he's picked college fraternities because they're a slightly, um, uh, you know, slightly controversial idea or controversial organisation. Now, he plays them, all of them, an audio argument about why those college fraternities are morally wrong. And he's assuming, because these people are members, that they're going to disagree with his argument, or disagree at least with the, the opening premise. The twist in the experiment is that he plays that audio argument in one of two ways. He either plays it without any distraction at all, so they can give it their full attention, or he makes the listeners, the kind of separate group of listeners, um, listen to his audio argument whilst they are watching an unrelated silent film. Then at the end of that, he asks all the participants how much they have changed their point of view, how much they now agree with his argument. And his key finding is that people were more likely to shift their opinion if they had had to watch the silent film, if they were being distracted. And his hypothesis is that the brain is amazing at generating counter-arguments to defend its initial opinion. So the great thing about reaching people when they're distracted is that distraction has used up some of the brain's ability to generate those counter-arguments. So people become at least a little bit more persuadable. So you have two potential tactics as an advertiser now if you um, use Festinger's ideas. You can either reach people uh, not when they're giving people their undivided attention, but when they're doing something else. So, for example, if you want to win over rejectors, don't reach them in the cinema where they've got their full undivided attention. Festinger says that will just increase their ability to generate these counter-arguments. Instead, you want to reach people when they are doing something else, like on an auxiliary medium like radio. Now, that's to me, is fascinating because behavioural science suggests something that is counter to what I think 99% of media planners would do. If you want to win over those hard to reach or hard to persuade groups, it's actually moments of distraction, not full attention, that are, that are valuable. But you could also apply this as a creative. I mean, there's an argument that you know, if you take Vestinger's idea, the way to apply that in your creative is not, it's not about the direct argument you make. It's often about the indirect cues that you include in advertising. So the example that's often used is um, British Airways when they try to overturn their image of being you know, a little bit dowdy in the 1980s. Their success at doing that was not making direct logical arguments about their better service and the larger legroom and the, the better stewards and stewardesses. Because if they'd done that direct approach, all the rejectors would have come up with counter arguments. What they did instead was change the body language of the ads. Every single audiovisual ad always had the same bit of classical music, you know, that haunting piece from, from Deleves. And what that did is it never makes a direct argument that they're high quality, but it uses all those cultural associations about uh, classical music that's high quality and premium. So it's far more persuasive because it doesn't trigger 
because it's indirect, it doesn't trigger those brains, the, the, the counter arguments that otherwise people would be so good at creating. So yeah, three, three tactics there I think that might be useful. Foot in the door technique, changing the um, messenger that creates the message and then reaching people either indirectly or at distracted moments. And they are just as relevant for commercial brands as, as, as government advertising. There might be an opportunity at the moment because we've got uh, the opportunity potentially for some longer term brand messages and a huge increase in the amount that people are listening to radio and audio often at the moment in their home whilst working or doing other things. Uh, and that's quite a good opportunity to reach people whilst they're distracted um, with a brand message that could over time turn them from being a rejecter into someone that's more open to your brand. Absolutely right. So it's almost a resurgence for mediums like such as radio where they've got that audience at home. This podcast is brought to you by Total Media, the behavioural planning agency, an innovative approach to behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth. 